thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say physics. Medicine. Nature. Or space. Time. The brain. Life. The universe. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist, the show where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine. With me, Katie Haler. And me, Phil Sanson. This week, it's the start of our themed month, and our theme is On The Move. Today, stay tuned for some animal science. We're talking migration, monitoring, and when to intervene in how animals move. Plus, in the news, what do falling levels of coronavirus antibodies in those infected say about the likely success of a vaccine? Why might we want to dose ourselves with vitamin D? And why the moon is wetter than we first thought? The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Cases of coronavirus are surging again across Europe. In France, Emmanuel Macron has announced another lockdown. Germany are hot on their heels with a lockdown light. And Belgium currently has the world's highest per capita rate of coronavirus infections. And here in England, we've recently heard news of another lockdown coming into effect on the 5th of November. The sombre situation looked gloomier still earlier in the week when a study of the population's coronavirus antibody levels was published. We had hoped early in the pandemic that testing for antibodies would reveal that many people had already had the new coronavirus, perhaps without even realising it, and that they would remain immune. Unfortunately, those tests showed that so far, fewer than 10% of us appear to have been infected, which is too low to make a difference to how the virus spreads in the community. More damning still were the follow-up study results out this week, looking at how long people are hanging on to those antibodies afterwards. They fall away fast meaning people may well become susceptible again to infection within just months. So alarm bells began to ring for many who were concerned about the implications of the findings for a COVID-19 vaccine. Chris Smith spoke to Wendy Barclay. This study is called REACT. It's a huge study in which we ask people in the United Kingdom to do a home test. So we posted out one of these finger prick blood tests and people formed that in their own home took a photo and sent it back to us. And over the three rounds that we did this in July, August and September, more than 350,000 people did that. And when you then compare the results that come back, this is really a yes or no answer. Have you got antibodies against coronavirus? What came back? In the first round, we found that 6% scored positive on the test. It's a yes, no answer, as you say, and that means, yes, they had antibodies to the SARS-CoV-2 virus. We've already checked this test is quite specific. That means that sometime between January and July, they will have been infected with the virus. When we looked again in August and September, the percentage of the random people that had been selected for those rounds who had the positive score in the test was lower 
And by the time we got to the beginning of September, only 4.4% of the people had those antibodies, which is, if you calculate it, about a 26% decrease. Does a negative test then therefore mean a person can regard themselves as back to immunological point zero? Or do you think they still have some degree of immunity? So were they challenged again with the virus, their immune system would actually have a head start? I think there are two questions here to sort of pull apart. One is, how much antibody does a person need in their blood to be considered immune? There are some studies in non-human primates where vaccines have been given and then animals have been challenged. And you can begin to see how much antibody didn't confer protection. So then you can begin to sort of put a benchmark in. And we actually think that there's quite a good correlation between the point at which you cross the threshold of no longer scoring positive and the tighter of antibody that you would need to have in order to be considered immune. So from that point of view, it's quite worrying because it does say that once a person's no longer scores positive, they haven't got the amount of antibody that we think they need to be protected. But on the other hand, as we all know, the immune response has memory. And once you've seen a pathogen once, you are in a better place to respond to it again. And without a doubt, that prior exposure to SARS-CoV-2 ought to mean that most people, even if they've lost their antibody that's circulating in their blood, have a head start, which probably means they might get infected, but hopefully less severely so. And what would be the implication then for a vaccine? We have to remain optimistic. Vaccines work in completely different ways than natural immunity. Most viruses have evolved ways of evading their host immune response. It's a hypothesis that I have that coronaviruses may be quite good at stopping the antibody response working as well as it might otherwise do. And in that case, it might fall away more quickly, perhaps, than a vaccination with a very powerful vaccine could uh, lead to longer lasting antibodies. Fingers crossed. Wendy Barkley, she's at Imperial College. Now, as we're heading into winter, and if you're spending rather more time inside your home at the moment, you're probably not getting as much sunlight on your skin as in the summer months. And the body actually uses sunlight to make vitamin D, which is important for healthy teeth, bones and muscles. This week, a paper published in The Lancet Diabetes and Endocrinology has looked at whether levels of vitamin D may be related to how someone might fare with COVID-19. And Chris Smith spoke to respiratory physician David Thicket, who wasn't involved in this study, but has been involved in lots of related research. There are several strands of evidence that point to uh, vitamin D protecting against viral respiratory infections. And there are similarities between the patterns of infection across the globe between the coronavirus, seasonal influenza and the swine flu pandemic, whereby the greater the distance you move from the equator, the higher the case rates or those viral infections, which has implicated sun, sunlight exposure and potentially vitamin D deficiency is one of the possible causes of that. What does it actually do to the immune system, though? Because most people will be familiar with vitamin D in terms of its role in maintaining healthy bones and skeleton. So what's it got to do with immunity? Well, it's actually a very broad acting steroid hormone. Um, It affects a very large number of cells outside of the bone, which is the classical actions of vitamin D, but has certainly been implicated 
in immune health, uh, blood cells such as lymphocytes respond to vitamin D and also other organs such as the heart and muscle strength has been linked to having a good level of vitamin D. So it's a fairly protective hormone and very wide effect, which potentially have some advantages in the sort of severe lung injury that COVID pneumonia causes. Presumably then someone has done the obvious experiment where they've measured vitamin D levels and then they've looked at people who have or haven't had severe infections with coronavirus and have tried to marry the two together. Yeah, so we've done that pre-coronavirus. What COVID patients get is something called the acute respiratory distress syndrome, which is the very severe lung inflammatory response. And it can be due to pneumonia, viral pneumonia. You can get it after trauma or smoke inhalation, those sorts of things. And we'd shown that levels of vitamin D are very low in people who develop that syndrome. And gradually, as the pandemic has gone on, more and more papers have been published saying that this is possibly the same with coronavirus infections. So to answer my question then, is there data yet linking vitamin D levels when people are challenged with coronavirus and whether or not they do get severe COVID? Yeah, basically, vitamin D deficiency is very common in COVID patients. And there are a number of papers that have come out recently that implicate it in the severity of the exaggerated immune response. But most of the studies are quite small. They have a limited number of controls, which there are some issues with because of the difficulties of doing this sort of research during a pandemic. Obviously, one other explanation is that it's just that other lifestyle factors that happen to be there alongside a low level of vitamin D are what's really causing the increased risk and that the vitamin D is just an innocent bystander. Yeah, so, I mean, those studies are all observational. There are no large trials of treating COVID patients with vitamin D, but there is one trial called the Cordoba study, and that study did show some positive responses to vitamin D treatment. Are we, in some respects, treating the wrong people if we come in with vitamin D once a person is sufficiently unwell to have come to the notice of a doctor? Would it not be potentially more effective to give people supplementation with vitamin D before they even become infected with coronavirus? Because A, that would would help the fact that it looks like people who live in countries like ours across winter are chronically short of this important vitamin anyway, but also they would be therefore in better shape to cope with coronavirus if they caught it. Well, I think there are two aspects. Is vitamin D useful as a preventative agent and is it useful as a treatment um, once you've got COVID? In terms of prevention, there is evidence that it reduces viral respiratory tract infections. It's not huge, 12% reduction probably in the number of infections, but it may also influence the severity. So government recommends 400 units a day during the winter. That's probably an underestimate of what is needed. But there aren't any trials to show that giving vitamin D to prevent coronavirus, currently the results are available, although one has been started in the UK very recently, but it won't report till the spring at the earliest. What are your instincts telling you? Do you think that we're going to end up in a position where it it will turn out actually this is quite a useful intervention and given that most of us are vitamin D deficient across winter in high latitudes, it wouldn't do any harm to advise people to to just up their vitamin D intake anyway? Yeah, I mean, I'm taking 4,000 units a day. Most of my consultant colleagues who work in intensive care in Birmingham are already taking vitamin D supplements. It's particularly important to think if you're of non-Caucasian ethnicity, those individuals are much higher risk of vitamin D deficiency. So in targeted individuals, it could be extremely effective, I think. And, you know, I'm taking it and I recommend it to my patients when I find they're vitamin D deficient. 
That was David Thicket, and he's at the University of Birmingham. Up into space now, though, and speaking of sunshine, astronomers this week made the startling discovery of water on the sunlit side of the moon. Now, it's not the first water we know about up there. There is ice in the cold, shaded craters at the poles and incredibly tiny amounts of water gas above the surface. But nobody expected the stuff to survive in the heat of the sun. Speaking with Phil, NASA's Casey Hannibal explained how she's made something of a scientific splash with the discovery of what they say are the unmistakable infrared signals of trace water. We used a camera that can see infrared light It flies at 45,000 feet in the atmosphere, which is above commercial airliners. What's the point? Why not just have a camera here on Earth? The Earth's atmosphere completely blocks any light from the six micron fingerprint that we're specifically looking for to detect the water molecule. So when you say it's a six micron fingerprint, do you mean some radiation that has a wavelength of six microns that only water emits out? That is correct. Why hadn't anyone looked for this before? You know, I ask myself this question all the time. I think the reason we never looked at it before is because we thought the moon was supposed to be dry. It wasn't until about a decade ago that we found there was some hydrogen-bearing species, and it could have been in the form of the water molecule or its close cousin hydroxyl, which is just a hydrogen atom and an oxygen atom. But we didn't really believe that the water molecule itself could be on the sunlit surface of the moon. Why not? Why couldn't it be on the sunlit side? The lunar environment itself is very harsh, and so we thought that any water that would be present would be lost to space or it would migrate away to these cold polar regions on the moon. I mean, what was your reaction then when you actually saw this signal that means, yes, there's water there? I was quite surprised and excited and shocked. I'm pretty sure I screamed at my (laughs) advisor on the phone. (laughs) What's the explanation then? Because you just told me that people didn't think it was possible to have water existing on this sunlit side. What we believe is happening is that somehow the water is being shielded from the harsh lunar environment. And our current ideas are that the water is stored with inside impact glasses. An impact glass is formed when a micrometeorite impacts the surface of the moon. It melts part of the lunar soil and it can either form molecular water or it can deliver some water, which would then be stored into this melt, which when the melt cools, it creates this impact glass. Is it sort of water trapped in tiny glass crystals? Yeah, exactly. Could it also be there as ice sheltered somehow? Because there's another paper that was released at the same time as a pair with yours that was saying that based on some scientists modeling, they think that ice can exist in in tiny little cold traps inside the moon. I like to think about it as our two papers present two different types of reservoirs for water. The water that we are seeing could not be due to it being stored in a micro cold trap. And that's because these micro cold traps are so cold and they're so dark, they don't emit any light at the six microns that we're looking at. Uh, Okay, so you've got your water that you've sensed, which you think is in these tiny glass crystals. And you've got this other paper, which is doing some, some modeling, which thinks that you can have little bits of ice. Between all this prospect of water, how much water are we talking about? From our observations, what we estimate is on the surface is about 100 to 400 parts per million of water. And to kind of put that into a little bit of perspective, the sand in the Sahara Desert is 100 times more water present than on the lunar surface. 
Oh, my God. When you talk about water on the moon, I thought you meant more than that. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, we're not talking about puddles. There you go. Not a nice reservoir or anything for a moon base, but certainly an interesting scientific discovery. Casey Hunnable. And that study, along with parallel work modeling those micro-cold traps on the moon, has been published in Nature Astronomy. So what we were trying to do with this paper is to demonstrate the ability to type using brain signals anywhere between approximately four and approximately eight words per minute, a factor of between two and four faster than what's been demonstrated before. Each month, the eLife podcast talks to some of the world's best scientists. Join me, Chris Smith, as I hear about breathtaking discoveries hot off the press. Find the eLife podcast on iTunes or listen and download for free from nakedscientist.com slash eLife. On the way, stay tuned as we migrate across the science of animal movement in a few minutes' time. Before that, though, let's come back to the topic of COVID. Everyone is praying for a vaccine against the coronavirus. But when it finally comes, who gets it? And how much will they have to pay? Now, it's not the first time we've talked about this crucial issue. And there's a number of moral arguments to be made. But now, economists from the research organization RAND Europe have been predicting the economic impacts of one country keeping a vaccine for themselves. Marco Hafner led the modeling. Marco, welcome. Now, tell me, what did you find? What effect would this kind of vaccine nationalism have? We did a lot of economic modeling on the different scenarios. But in one scenario, we found that if, for instance, only those countries or regions which are currently developing a vaccine and can also have the potential to, to manufacture it at scale, like the European Union, the UK, the US, China, Russia, and India, if only those uh, countries would have initially access to vaccine and can immunize their population sufficiently, um, the global economic cost would still be about 1.2 trillion every single year. Really? Why? So this is because what we model in our study is we look at COVID-19-induced reduced activity in service sectors with, with close physical approximations, such as hospitality sector, the recreation sector, but also transportation. So reduced activity in those sectors can have negative consequences for countries across, across the globe. Oh, so you're saying that because economies rely on the service industry, on tourism, on other things, then you've got this economic loss because everyone else still has coronavirus except for your country. Exactly. If you are a country and you can vaccinate your population, your domestic demand in, in those sectors will gradually um, improve. But if other regions or countries in, in the world will not have access to vaccine, those economies will still suffer, which has a negative consequences on international trade cost, but also an international um, demand. Does it depend on which country you're in? Um, it doesn't necessarily depend on which country you're in, um, as long as if you're the country who will be able to vaccinate your population, demand in that country will, will improve. But as long as all the other regions will not have access, in those regions, the negative consequences will still be low. And even if you're a country who can vaccinate your population sufficiently, you will still suffer economically because you, you live in a globalized world and you, you're interrelated into global um, kind of supply chains. I mean, we're making an economic argument here. For someone looking at economics, is the cost that you're calculating that would come from other countries around you having COVID really higher than the cost of you making a bunch more vaccines? Because vaccines surely are not cheap. Yeah, they're probably not going to be cheap. Um, obviously, there's a lot of uncertainty around that, how, how, you know, how they will be priced and so on. 
But in our study, we showed that even if only the poorest countries in the world, and that's the countries that are, that are classified by the World Bank as the lower income countries, if only those would initially um, kind of miss out on, on, on the vaccines, we estimate that the high income countries would still lose combined about 119 billion a year in GDP terms. And current existing estimates suggest that vaccinating the poorer countries would probably cost around 25 billion US dollars a year. Um, and if you take that into, into perspective, that means that for every dollar high-income countries would spend in giving access to low-income countries, they probably would get a return up to about $5. Oh, really? Gives you a lot of bang for your buck. Yeah, you could say that, basically. <laughs> I mean, this is a real change from the rhetoric of someone like, well, I hate to bring up Donald Trump in because he's on the news almost every day, but someone like that who would say, you know, we're going to make a vaccine and my country's going to get it. Priority number one. You're saying that actually... The moral argument is the economic argument as well, and that if one country has the coronavirus, that's kind of bad for everyone. Yes, I mean, obviously, there's a point to be made of having some sort of nationalistic behavior across different leaders, because obviously they are responsible to their own populations and probably would want to you know, make sure that their population get access first. But you can make this, you know, not only a moral argument, but also an economic argument. And actually, if there's a way to to provide equitable access of for vaccines across the globe, there's definitely a return on that. Marco, thank you so much. And if you at home would like to follow up on the references to the paper that we've discussed, as well as the other papers during the show, you can find them on our website. Go to nakedscientists.com. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire, cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. Music in the program is sponsored by Epidemic Sound, perfect music for audio and video productions. Throughout November, we're going to be musing over movement. From cells moving at one extreme to planetary movements at the other. And today we're kickstarting the series by talking animal movement. And it's a highly relevant time to do so. Nature is in crisis. An intergovernmental report published last year warned that a million species are now threatened with extinction. There's been a lot of debate and discussion about how much land or sea does nature need in order to flourish. And there's been all sorts of debates about whether uh, nature needs half of the planet or more. What this is really is a negotiated settlement that if we can provide 30% of our lands and seas to be well protected and well managed for nature, then that's going to give nature a fighting chance to be restored. That was the RSPB's Global Conservation Director, Martin Harper, reacting a couple of weeks back to the Prime Minister Boris Johnson's commitment to protect 30% of UK land by 2030, among efforts to tackle biodiversity loss. So, from majestic elephants to rather brave snails, stay tuned as we explore ways to facilitate and restrict animal movement in order to preserve the diversity of life on Earth. First up, let's consider migration. Perhaps this brings to mind large mammals travelling across swathes of Africa or migrations that plunge into the water from gargantuan blue whales to tiny zooplankton. So why bother actually migrating at all and how does it work? Well, Paul Walton from the RSPB joins us now. Why do some animals migrate and others not? What's the point? 
I think it's really about two things. The first is survival. So, for example, if you are an animal breeding in the Arctic summer, which is massively productive, there's lots of food around, there's lots of sunlight, um, that's great. But then when that summer is over, you've got kind of nine months of ice and darkness and very few animals can actually survive that. So it makes sense to move to other areas where your survival chances are enhanced. So that's one thing. And I guess the other really big driver is the seasonality, uh, uh, utilizing temporarily available resources, in particular food. So there'll be blooms of algae or blooms of insects or fruits coming into season or seeds, for example, that, that are really there temporarily. And it's about moving to utilize those resources. I think broadly speaking, that's the drivers for these incredible movements. Now, Paul, you're actually a seabird expert, aren't you? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. What are some of these journeys like? Staggering. As far as seabirds are concerned, you know, here in, in, in Scotland, uh, I worked in Shetland and Orkney where there are breeding Arctic terns. Now, the Arctic tern really is the longest distance migrant of any animal. So they go from the, the Arctic and subarctic where, where they breed right down to the sort of subantarctic and Antarctic, but not just down to the bottom of the Atlantic, quite a lot of them go right round to the other side of Antarctica, which means they're actually going as far as they possibly could. They are going right round, literally halfway around the world, um, as far as they possibly could before they come back. And one thing that really struck me as working in Shetland is in midsummer in Shetland, it doesn't really get dark. The locals just call it the simmer dim. Uh, at night, it's just kind of, it's just kind of like a twilight before it starts to get light again. So these birds are experiencing almost 24 hours of daylight when they're here breeding. But then, of course, it's the same when they go down south and, they, and they're experiencing the, the Antarctic summer. So these are birds that really spend nearly all of their lives um, in the light and in the air. It's quite beautiful, really. That's phenomenal. How do they know where to go? That's a really, really good question. There's a mixture of things. So insects migrate. So there's the monarch butterflies over in the United States that migrate down to just a couple of valleys in Mexico. And then there's our own painted ladies, butterflies. We've recently discovered they'd make a high altitude m migration. Now, those animals, it's very unlikely there's any learned behavior in there. It's instinctive. And I think for many birds, the corncrake is one bird that RSPB has been studying for many years. And um, it's got complex migration patterns only just, just emerged, but the birds only live for one or two years mostly. So their migration route is very likely to, to be an instinctive thing. For other animals like the Arctic breeding geese, we know that they live longer and they hang out in family groups sometimes for their whole lives. And it's very likely that young geese really need to learn the ins and outs of migration, not just the route to take, but the vital stopover points where they can feed to make these long distance flights. Thanks very much, Paul. We'll leave it there for now, but we'll be hearing from Paul again later on. Now, not all migratory species have the capacity to cover great distances without help. Back in 2006, Cambridge University mollusk expert Richard Priest published research of snails making a phenomenal journey. Some have been shown to travel enormous distances as passengers are on the back of birds or other sort of organisms. The ones I'm about to tell you about are about a centimetre long, two or three millimetres uh, in width. Long, slender things called balia. 
I was fortunate enough to go on an expedition to the Tristan de Cunha Islands in 1982. I spent most of the time on an island called Inaccessible Island, which, as the name suggests, is rather, rather a difficult place to get to. These are volcanic islands right in the middle of the South Atlantic, about midway between South Africa and South America. With my interest, I was obviously keen to look at the species of snail that occur on those islands and nowhere else. Uh, very few people have had the opportunity to do any field work there. I was also keen to see what introduced snails and other things occur on those islands, given their extreme remote position. And it turns out that Richard isn't the first to go looking for snails on this island. In fact, the first person to have d- to collected snails on Tristan was... Uh, a chap called Captain Carmichael sent out to Tristan with the initial garrison because basically the, the, the founding human population there was sent there to try and deny the French a base from which to rescue Napoleon. So we're talking in the immediate aftermath of Waterloo. Uh, so a British garrison was set up there uh, and he was obviously bored out of his mind and he actually resorted to collecting snails amongst other things uh, and he found Uh, some of these snails that no one else had ever seen before. The question of how land snails ended up on remote islands was one that Charles Darwin himself pondered. He comes into the story in in a general way because one of the things that fascinated him was trying to address the, the, the huge problem of how on earth do land snails with such proverbially poor powers of dispersal, how on earth can they get to such remote islands? And these are islands that are oceanic, so they've never had any connection with mainland at all. So they must have gained access to those islands through some sort of aerial means. Uh, And since they don't actually physically fly, some other mechanism must be involved. And this was a subject that fascinated him for many years, And indeed, his very last paper was written about dispersal in mollusks. Richard explained that there are two groups of snails on Tristan. The recent imports, several European species that have got there under human agency, likely from South Africa, where they've also been introduced. And then there are two families, Balia and Saxinia, which belong to a much more ancient colonisation. And they don't swim, they don't fly, but somehow at least one brave specimen made its way all the way over from Europe. Could they have been stowaways on a boat visiting the island? Well, Chris Smith asked Richard this previously on The Naked Scientists, and Richard explained that since the islands were only discovered in 1506, the amount of variation that now exists couldn't have occurred in that time frame. Instead, it seems they hitched a ride. So how does a little snail manage to hitch a ride on a migratory bird, cling on rather than falling into the depths of the ocean, and not only survive but thrive on an island so far from home? Well, this is a very uh, interesting question, and uh, a lot of people have um, tried to explore this. There is a little book written in the 1890s trying to document all the cases of passive dispersal in land snails, land of freshwater snails. Uh, So bivalves are known to clip themselves onto the legs of insects or newts. Birds have been shot and snails have been found amongst the plumage. 
But others have been shown to travel through the gut of a duck or something like that, a wader, and have actually survived the passage in a live state. So that is obviously another mechanism. Rather handily, these snails are hermaphrodites, allowing a lonesome snail to start a colony potentially. And Richard's done some DNA detective work to check these really are the descendants of European snails. I collected material that we dissected and we showed from the dissections that, in fact, they were anatomically uh, indistinguishable from Balia, European Balia. Uh, and we followed that up by looking at some DNA uh, from the snails from Tristan. And indeed, everything points to the fact that they are indeed uh, Balia. That family does not occur in Africa or anywhere in between, so that there's no other source population from which they could have arisen. And it seems the birds carrying these snails may have even made a pit stop at some point because they've even been found on a high peak on the island of Madeira. Richard Priest there. That's amazing, isn't it? Well, if you're not a hitchhiker, though, how do animals move around? Well, you might use what's called an ecological corridor. These are routes that facilitate the free movement of animal life, be it a river linking fresh and saltwater habitats or a man-made bridge built to minimise roadside fatalities. Nina Bola is an ecologist from the UN Environment Programme World Conservation Monitoring Centre here in Cambridge, who looks at ways to manage land for the benefit of human development and biodiversity. And this corridor concept is important in the work she does. Nina, can you tell us what exactly are ecological corridors? So ecological corridors are clearly defined areas that are managed for the long term to maintain or restore connectivity between protected areas and natural areas. They could be on land, freshwater, marine ecosystems or even in the air. They could be managed from small scales to regional scales to even continental scale. So thinking about ecological corridors that are managed to support migratory turtles or birds, there's clear guidance. It's been developed um, to support restoring and managing these corridors, and they take various forms. They could, you know, be from crossings built by people like bridges or tunnels to help wildlife cross safely. The routes could also be um, used by wildlife seasonally to reach water or food. For example, the movement of you know 1.5 million wildebeest migrating across the protected Mara Serengeti ecosystem that straddles the border between Kenya and Tanzania, for example. And it often takes many years for these animals to learn where to move in order to find food. And this behavior is generally passed from generation to generation. You've mentioned a lot of different types of corridors. Are they a particularly important concept, Nina? Yes, it's a very important concept uh, that planners and developers need to take into account. We're looking at our environment now, today. Human development has altered the natural areas uh, in a variety of ways, causing these areas to become somewhat disconnected or fragmented. This has a really big impact on, on the movement of species and ultimately on their survival. There may be barriers that could hinder this movement, like uh, linear infrastructure such as roads or railways, or even fences that cut right through areas uh, in which animals naturally move. The science shows that maintaining ecological corridors through connectivity conservation is essential for keeping species populations and ecosystems viable. And without connectivity, ecosystems can't function properly. And without well-functioning ecosystems, biodiversity or nature 
is at risk. And when we talk about biodiversity, we're thinking about the variety of all life on Earth, which actually underpins our lives from the production of food to clean water to the health of our global economy. And we know today the world is facing a global nature crisis, you know, with up to almost a million species are now known to be threatened by extinction. Nina, specifically, you've been looking at how best to manage movement priorities between people and elephants in Kenya, haven't you? So tell us a bit about your project. We have a project called the Development Corridor Partnership. And the overarching aim of the project is really to investigate how human infrastructure impacts on animal movement and to understand what we can do to minimize that impact. And so one specific element of the project looks at the ongoing phased development of an extensive railroad network, which is affecting the movement of elephants crossing between protected areas and their natural habitats in search of food. And really, this first phase of the railway um, has established underpasses for animals. Some parts of the railway has also been elevated to around 15 meters to allow elephants to, to move under. But we need to do a better job at understanding how these animals respond to these structures, especially as we know it takes a long time to recognize them, for them to know where the crossings are in the first place. How much do we understand about the impact that climate change is having or is likely to have on animal movement? Because presumably, if the way animals move change, then the way that land needs to be managed could change. Absolutely. Climate change has real implications for wildlife corridors because climate change can change the patterns of animal movements. And animals generally need to move in response to food availability. When climate changes with increasing droughts, it's just going to make it more and more difficult for animals to find this food. And that's why scientific data and modeling is so important. We need to be able to predict how animal movements might change in the future and plan accordingly. And this is also true for people. People are moving as as climate change occurs with this increasing human alteration. We need to act at larger spatial scales and therefore both planning and management need to consider well-designed ecological corridors that benefit both uh, people and nature. So what's the next steps for your Canyon project? It's really about the learnings. Uh, using science, using spatial models and maps can actually help us to identify where animals cross. These results will be very useful to help inform a future phase that is being carried out to develop the third part of the railway network. And, you know, we've seen lots of successes in many parts of the world in both avoiding infrastructure, especially in highly sensitive areas. And so the results from this project have enormous potential to help planners and decision makers think about where future ecological corridors could be placed to help wildlife cross safely, protect vital landscapes. Nina Bowler, thank you very much. From animals moving by their own agency, let's consider the other side of the coin, when us humans get involved in moving animals around. Invasive species, those introduced by humans to a new habitat, are a major concern for maintaining the diversity of species on the globe, and whereas some cases of introductions are purposeful, many are accidental. Australia is well known for its unique wildlife, and much effort goes into protecting it with various measures to prevent and deal with invasive species to minimise the impact on native animals and plants and subsequent impacts on society. 
This is known as biosecurity, and expert Simon McCurdy at Murdoch University in Perth, Western Australia, has recently analysed a 1,500 cabin cruise ship for stowaway insect life to better understand the biosecurity risks posed by these global transport links to vulnerable habitats. We've been heavily engaged in working with an island that has one of the world's largest uh, natural gas plants on it. And when this project commenced, there was requirements put on by both our federal and state government that the developers were not allowed to introduce a single, what was referred to as a non-Indigenous species or an invasive species to the island. The island was actually very much as it was pre the separation of this island from the mainland. So for more than 8,000 years, what's been living on that island was quite unique. And for some species that have become extinct on the mainland, this is their only last reserve. And so because of that, there's been very strict requirements put in place as to how that island would be protected. In developing up the gas plant on the island, a decision was made to bring a, a cruise vessel, 1,500 cabin size, bring it to the island to operate as a accommodation facility for more than 15 months. And because that vessel was operated for most of its um, working life in the Baltic, we then set up detailed surveillance on that vessel to find out what organisms were actually living on that vessel and what organisms might pose a risk to the island when the vessel arrived. We identified a number of insect species on the vessel that posed a a significant risk not only to the island but also to Australia as a whole. How do you go about surveying and monitoring that enormous boat? We actually set up quite an extensive program. We had scientists on board the vessel every day for that 19 months. Extensive maps of the vessel. For the first period, it was very much about looking over every part of the vessel in quite an intensive way. Part of that also included actually, you know, lifting carpet, dismantling wooden seating and things to try and get into any of the little holes and nooks where insects might live. And then through a process of starting to map where the insects were at a broad scale on decks, then to focus our efforts in on the particular decks where there was significant populations. So the insects that we were particularly concerned about, which were insects that are normally uh, concerned with stored products, they were all around the decks where there had been bars in the previous life of the vessel, restaurants, dining rooms, nightclubs. So anywhere where people were consuming a lot of food or drink, that's where the insects would be. And our theory in the end on why we continued to find so many insects in those areas was just that when humans are there eating and drinking, we just naturally drop a lot of food and drink. And so it's the mix of, you know, the human detritus skin and that that we just drop every day, food crumbs and spilt drinks that had become this long-term food source to keep these insects alive. Were there any insects that were particularly successful stowaways? Yeah, so there was uh, there was one in particular, and it was the one that we actually considered was the biggest threat to Australia, and that was an insect called Tribolium destructor, a tiny little beetle. We're only talking, you know, a beetle of about five millimetres in length, but 
despite all the effort we put into hunting for this beetle and baiting and trapping and chemical treatments, even at the, the end of the 19 months when that vessel sailed away, we had not managed to kill the population. We were still finding larvae on the last few days before it left. You know, we didn't eradicate the insect from the vessel, but what we did manage, and that was an, also an important part, was we didn't want the beetle to leave the vessel. If it left the vessel and then got introduced to the island and then to Australia, you know, that could have been a significant threat. So we set up a strong uh, biosecurity system on the vessel where every single passenger that left the vessel had their luggage inspected. And we also did a lot of communication with the people that lived on the vessel, which were workers on the island, in communicating to them the importance of making sure they weren't carrying any of these insects as hitchhikers and to make sure you know their luggage was clean when they left. And through that process, we were successful in making sure that the insect did not leave the vessel. How would you summarise the significance of this work? Because it sounds like there aren't just lessons here to learn for Australia. Cruise liners go, well, by definition, all over the world. Yeah. COVID has thrown up an interesting discussion around cruise vessels and, you know, what they'll look like for the next, you know, few years. But what we had seen up to before um, COVID arrived was quite a rapidly increasing industry. And there was this need with passengers to keep visiting more and more remote locations. To us, the biggest message out of this, and from a biosecurity perspective, the concern is that if we are going to allow cruise vessels to visit remote and vulnerable locations where we have very few or no invasive species, then we have to be very conscious of the risk that they may introduce pests into these areas. I don't think we should assume that just because from a surface view a a cruise vessel looks very clean, it is possible that, you know, lurking underneath that cleanliness layer is a population of insects that, you know, could pose a significant risk to a new area. Simon McCurdy. And so far in the show, we've heard about animals moving themselves and each other around and how human activity can result in some species being moved into new habitats where they can cause real problems. So what can be done to address or prevent this happening in the first place? We heard from RSPB's Paul Walton earlier. Paul, let's bring you back in, as well as being a bird ecologist. You're also the policy lead for the RSPB on invasive species. So I I wanted to ask you, because we've considered movement throughout the air and on the land, can we peer into the water and talk about what species you're concerned about here in the UK? Uh, When it comes to aquatic species here in the UK, I I I think there really is quite a significant threat. Now, All environments on Earth can be subject to the impact of invasive uh, non-native species, Um, but some are particularly vulnerable, and that is islands, as we've been hearing um, from your previous contributors, but also um, other insular habitats like freshwater bodies. Our freshwater habitats in this country, the upland tarns, the chalk streams, our rivers, our estuaries, are are really um, potentially quite vulnerable. There's a group of species that we call the Ponto-Caspian freshwater species that evolved over in the Caspian Black and Azov Sea area um, east of Europe and um, have actually in recent decades been spreading across continental Europe sort of en masse. And it's kind of 20 to 30 species of aquatic plants and mollusks and crustaceans and small fish. 
But the thing is that they all co-evolve together and they all coexist very successfully. And when some of this, them establish, it improves the establishment conditions for the others. And they have been moved between water bodies by people simply moving things like angling gear and boats and canoes and, and other equipment between different water bodies. And you get eggs and propagules moved into new catchments and they've spread right across continental Europe. Now there's maybe four or five of these species now already in this country. The Dicarogamorous, the killer shrimp, which is established in some of the water bodies in south and central England. But there are sort of 25 of them sitting in the, the, the Dutch ports waiting to come over to this country. And so I'm really concerned that we need to improve our biosecurity in this country. It's fantastic hearing Simon McCurdy there talking about the immense detail that people are studying biosecurity over in Australia. And we need to start to learn some of these lessons over here in the UK as well. Is there any way of predicting what the future is going to look like and, and what our outlook's going to be? In general terms, there is. We can't predict exactly which species are going to come here, but the number one route of people directly moving, either deliberately or accidentally, species around the world, that the main pathway is international trade. Okay, so we know that there's, there's something we, we need to focus on around just being extremely careful about how we are moving animals and plants and, and fungi uh, around the world in our trade. And we know in this country, post-Brexit, clearly there are going to be new international trading relationships developed. So we are going to have, naturally, new arrays of species arriving. That is one issue I think that we need to have our eye on. The other, I think, is that um, climate change, as it progresses, and progress it will, um, is, is known to be improving the establishment conditions. So species may be brought here, but for example, they're going to start to find there's less frost, for example, and that is going to allow more species to get that toehold and to establish themselves in the wild once they either escape or accidentally released or sometimes even deliberately released for one reason or another. So I think with the combination of climate change and developing international trade, there is a real risk uh, to this country from something which we know already is actually costing us not only our precious uh, ecological resources and biodiversity treasures, but it's costing us something like £2 billion a year, just the management at the moment. I think the key lesson is prevention and biosecurity is the key. And at the moment, we're simply not investing much in this country in biosecurity, less than a million pounds a year. We have been pressing with other environmental organisations for a significant increase in the spend on biosecurity for the UK and the establishment of an invasive species inspectorate to help people to adopt best practice with regard to biosecurity. Any final reflections on the show as well, Paul? What should people take away about how animals move? My reflections are really around the enormity of um, of animal movements right across the, the different groups. It was fascinating to hear Richard Priest talking about Tristan de Cunha. Of course, one of the Tristan Islands is Gough Island. It's a UK overseas territory. It is the, the last refuge of the fabulous Tristan Albatross. And those birds are in severe decline because they're being predated by non-native mice, which were introduced onto the island through shipping. The RSPB is engaged in a project to try to eradicate those mice and save 
uh, species from from extinction. So there's a whole range of non-native species issues out there. When Nina described the global biodiversity crisis, she was really right. And invasive species are one of the five drivers of that. And it's just going to have to be an integral part of our response to that crisis is to be much smarter about the way human beings move animals and plants around the planet. It's been great to have you. Thank you so much, Paul Walton there from the RSPB. And thank you to all our other guests this week. That's Richard Priest, Nina Bola and Simon McCurdy. And just before we finish the show, it's time for question of the week. Right on trend, we've gone with an animal question this week. And Phil's been driven into a flap by this question from listener Satish. How does a bat sleep the whole day by hanging on a tree while being upside down? No effect blood circulation. Every one of our questions of the week goes on our science forum. That's nakedscientist.com slash forum. And Evan from Australia responded, pointing out that most bats are pretty small. So there's very little distance between the top and bottom of their bodies, especially compared to humans, making pumping the blood that little bit easier. But the next few responses on the forum quickly moved on to the topic of bat excrement. So I left to speak to bat expert Brock Fenton. Many bats hang upside down and in this posture show no negative impacts on patterns of blood flow. But these bats look at us standing around and worry about whether our blood all rushes to our feet. In either case, humans or bats, the circulatory system has the important job of maintaining blood pressure across the body. If our blood pressure drops too much, we suffer an oxygen shortage, get dizzy and pass out. To avoid this, bats, like all mammals, have valves that prevent blood from rushing to the head. But the next challenge is to go from roosting to flying. Bats are very small mammals that undergo many changes in body posture as they fly. Their circulatory systems are adapted to smooth out the impacts of these changes, as ours do when we run and jump and move around. So that's a small body, a specialized circulatory system, and plus... Bats also have very large hearts and lungs for their size and astonishing heart rates to power their rapid flight that go up to 20 beats per second. But a fundamental question is, why hang upside down? For bats, the situation is complicated. While most species' individuals hang upside down, some do not. Those that do rely on a particular arrangement of tendons so that they don't have to tense their feet to hang. In fact, clenching, for them, becomes the relaxed posture, and they actually have to use a muscle to unclench. Why have they evolved like this? Brock has a possible reason. Hanging upside down allows a bat to take flight by simply letting go, dropping, spreading its wings, and taking flight. This is much cheaper than trying to jump into the air or making a long takeoff run. Why do bats hang upside down then? I think it's because they're lazy. Western University's Brock Fenton, taking bats to task. Next time, from animals to plants, with this question from listener Kevin. Does water in my veggie garden in the morning mean that the water uptake will coincide with the intake of sunlight and so give my vegetables the best chance? Or is it just as good to water in the evening? If you've got any ideas, you can come plant the seed on our forum. That's the nakedscientist.com slash forum. Or if you've got a question you'd like to ask, email it to chris at thenakedscientist.com or use our web form, nakedscientist.com slash question. 
And that's all that we've got time for this week. Next week, we're zooming out to Earth and beyond, taking a look at movement on a planetary scale. That's next up in our On The Move month. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University's Institute of Continuing Education, and it's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Katie Haler. Thanks very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.